Unless you've made a serious mistake, you are currently listening to a free excerpt of the committee program with me, Arun Chaudhary. Our show contains lots more global politics, and you can become a member at fans.fm slash committee to receive our full YouTube show, audio, plus other exclusive content. That's fans.fm slash committee. And be sure to check out our YouTube show every Monday at 3 p.m. Eastern on the Namiki Konst YouTube channel. Thanks, and enjoy the show. Hello, and welcome back to the committee program. Today, we're actually going to be joined by three experts who are going to talk about the ongoing crisis in Yemen and in a panel put together by the show's own Julia Doubleday. And uh, it's going to be, I think, really interesting, and we're really excited to start. Julia, can you tell us what's on tap? Yes. So to give some brief background, Yemen's civil war has been going on since 2014 when Houthi forces took over the capital city of Sana'a. A coalition led by Saudi Arabia then launched airstrikes in an attempt to restore the government. In the seven years since, the nation has spiraled into chaos as splintered factions battle for power, and the U.S. continues to back the destructive bombing runs conducted by the Saudis. Adding to the crisis being experienced by Yemeni civilians on the ground are the effect of sanctions, attacks on a major port city, and an ongoing blockade that is leading to mass starvation and including, and especially, of children. Here to speak to us today about these crimes against humanity being committed against Yemeni civilians are Dr. Shireen Al-Ademi, a Yemeni-American activist, assistant professor at Michigan State University, and a frequent contributor to the journalistic outlet In These Times, Aisha Juman, founder and president of the Yemen Relief and Reconstruction Organization, and Hassan El-Tayab, Legislative Manager for Middle East Policy for the Friends Committee on National Legislation. Thank you all so much for joining us here today and sharing your expertise with us. Thanks for having us. Uh, I wanted to first uh, speak with Shireen a little bit about more detail about the history of this conflict. So I've given, obviously, a very broad overview, um, but I'd like to hear from you uh, why the U.S. got involved, uh, what the U.S. Have been, has been doing since the inception of the conflict, as well as what the origins are for this conflict and how it's been developing over the last few years. Um, thanks for having me. Um, so the U.S. has been involved since 2015 when they essentially joined the Saudi-led coalition's bombing and blockading of Yemen in March of that year. Um, I know you mentioned in your introduction that it, it's a civil war that began in 2014. I'm not sure I quite agree with that framing. Um, 2014 is when the Houthis took over the capital Sana'a, but even and there was a lot of civil unrest following that. Um, but even in those months of civil unrest, Yemenis were getting together and negotiating a resolution with a power-sharing, um, you know, government, uh, and that was disrupted by the Saudis. So just when they reached the UN mediated resolution, the Saudis began bombing two days later in 2015, along with the U.S. But, you know, prior to that, the reason Yemen was even in this um, in this time of, of civil unrest was because, you know, following the Arab Spring in 2011, so there were mass protests, people wanted a change in government, they toppled the dictator Saleh, who had been ruling Yemen for 30-odd years. Um, but then the appointed, essentially the appointed transitional president, Hadi, failed to move the country forward in ways that were going to be exclusive to everyone involved. And so um, the Houthis were one such faction that felt that they were not being heard. And then following the, you know, 
government had pulled some fuel subsidies in the summer of 2014 um, and in response the Houthis took over the capital to apply pressure on, on, on President Hadi. So all of this could have been solved internally. Yemenis, like I said, had gotten together and uh, negotiated a power-sharing government. Um, but, you know, Saudi involvement in Yemen has a long history, and this is the most overt example of Saudi intervention. Um, and this was also following the Iran deal and where Saudi felt excluded from, from the negotiation. And so the U.S. was very eager to support the Saudis in whatever they called this mission. And they thought it was going to be a two-week mission. Um, but also the U.S. has its own interests in the region. Yemen is at the, um, you know, this crossroads basically with Bab el-Mandeb Straits. So you've got a lot of international shipping going through to Europe, to U.S., to Asia. Uh, you've got 6.2 million barrels of oil and oil products per day traveling through that um, port. And um, the U.S. has always had a strategic interest in, in Yemen for that reason. And can you elaborate a little bit about um, this, the type of support that the U.S. Uh, is providing to Saudi Arabia? So it's almost everything. Um, the U.S. trains Saudi and Emirati soldiers and pilots. Um, they provide um, up until you know, end of 2018, they were providing mid-air refueling. So jets that were bombing Yemenis, uh, the U.S. would provide mid-air refueling for them. Um, you know, there's uh, obviously tens of billions of dollars in weapon sales under um, Obama, Trump, and now Biden. Um, there is a lot of um, kind of servicing of vehicles and aircrafts, even ones that are not sold by the U.S. to the Saudis. Um, and so, oh, and of course, there is also support in the command room. So the U.S. actually helps the Saudis choose targets. And every step of the way, essentially, I mean, it's not a it's not an American pilot, you know, dropping the bomb, but the bomb is an American bomb. Uh, that pilot was trained by the U.S. His plane was refueled by the U.S. Um, the target is chosen by the U.S. And so the U.S. is involved almost every step of the way. Well, I'd like to uh, throw it over to Aisha now to discuss a little bit about the effects being felt on the ground. So what are we talking about in terms of numbers of people being affected by this humanitarian crisis? Mm -hmm. What are the effects of things like blockades and sanctions um, of on civilians on the ground? Yeah, the, Yemen has been called by the UN as the largest humanitarian crisis in the world. Uh, the Yemeni population is about 30 million people, and two, 21 million people are in need of assistance today. Uh, of these, 12.1 million people are in need of assistance immediately to survive, and 4 million people in Yemen are displaced. The number of people who are hungry in Yemen um, is 16.3 million people. Of these, over 2.5 million people uh, are children less than five years of age. The UN also uh, said in February there are 400,000 Yemeni children who are um, at risk of dying within a few weeks to a few months because they are su suffering very extreme uh, famine. And that's in February, we are in June, and nothing has happened to improve the lives of those people. My suspicion is that many of these children would have died by now. That's, we also, as you, you um, said, we have a blockade on Yemen, so it's a blockade on ports and airports and commercial uh, flights coming in. And this was a purposeful um, 
measure that the Saudi-led coalition, with the support of the U.S., in, put in place when they started attacking Yemen in March of 2015. And uh, the result of that and the intention of that was to destroy Yemen economy. I mean, if we look at the economy with COVID-19, how the closures have affected a lot of people, resulted in food insecurity, resulted this, you know, imagine having that for six plus years in a row. So there's been a total destruction of the Yemeni economy and the livelihoods of many people in Yemen. Liz Grande, who was the UN humanitarian coordinator for Yemen, in her testimony uh, in April to the US Senate had said that this was the intention of the blockade on Yemen. Uh, and it's not just a blockade. So if you want to send money to Yemen, you cannot send money to Yemen. So they've really tightened every aspect to ensure that there is uh, maximum hurt, ma maximum impact uh, on the Yemeni population. And, and that's just really something that is, uh, is, is a, a war crime. Uh, you cannot use famine, you cannot use food. To, as, as a war tactic, and unfortunately, that has been used in Yemen for uh, you know for over six years now. We're in our seventh year, and a lot of people have been impacted. Uh, for example, the bank, the central bank that was in Sana'a, was moved in 2016 out of Sana'a, and as a result, a lot of the people, millions of civil servants, have been, have not been paid salaries, and that includes healthcare workers, that include teachers. And we know that also from the destruction due to the airstrikes that many of the health services, uh, only about 50% of the health services in Yemen are functional, functioning. The other 50% are either totally destroyed or partially functioning. We also know that the water system in Yemen, the sewage system in Yemen, all the infrastructure had been destroyed. The Saudis purposefully actually targeted hospitals, uh, and this is again um, an international, it, it is, is considered a war crime. And, and if we just look at the centers, the health centers and facilities that are operated by MSF, which is uh, Doctors Without Borders, about five of their centers were destroyed, including the cholera center on the day of its opening. Uh, cholera in Yemen, we have the largest cholera outbreak in the world with over 2.3 million cases. Uh, it's a shame on humanity. It's a shame on all of us that in this time and age, we have a cholera outbreak that this this large. We have the a diphtheria outbreak that is highly infectious, infectious and also high fatality rate that affects children that's been raging in Yemen, uh, unfortunately. Uh, Yemen has not had a diphtheria outbreak since 1980. Imagine that. We also now have um, a, a polio outbreak in Yemen. Again, polio, we're supposed to be ridding the wo world of polio. There is very strong international effort. Yemen had been cleared um, and certified polio free for a long time until these atrocities that have affected um, the Yemeni infrastructure and the Yemeni population. Now we have a polio outbreak uh, in Yemen. We have a dengue outbreak. I just got a call actually from um, a deputy minister of health 
in, in the South telling me that uh, dengue is ravaging now uh, in the Southern governments. Dengue has been uh, ravaging all governments actually for the last five years. So it's, you know, if you look whether it's food security, if you look at livelihood, if you look at internal displacement, if you look at disease outbreaks, all of that had been destroyed. Uh, one thing I also want to point out is when the Saudis were uh, also bombing, they bombed funeral, funeral homes, they found, you know, bombed schools, they bombed everything, but they also targeted, uh, you know, big roads that connect and bridges that connect the capital Sana'a to the rest of Yemen. And Sana'a is landlocked. So by targeting uh, the bridges and the roads that connect to Sana'a, the idea was you cannot bring food or fuel or anything to the country. So that's something that, again, if we look at, at war crimes, there are so, so much evidence uh, that even Human Rights Watch had discussed that. There was also the bombing of the school bus uh, with over 40 children death dying. Uh, many of them are less than 10 years of age. Um, so it's, it, however you look at it, and um, even the UN says, Yemen is not starving, Yemen is being starved. Um, and I actually agree with that statement. This is all done purposefully. And it's 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 horrific seeing, as you say, all of these things purposely come together to inflict uh, harm. Uh, Hassan, you work on the legislative side, so can you tell us something specific about the U.S. policy? And it'd be interesting to know where Biden is actually differentiating himself from Trump, uh, and also how legislation is going through Congress. Uh, Thank you so much uh, for hosting this conversation. I just want to say that Shireen and I should do quite a bit of advocacy, too, and I think they're de very much a part of this legislative process. Um, now, there's a lot there. So in February, there was this big you know, press release that was pushed out, an executive order by the Biden administration basically saying that they had ended U.S. support for offensive operations in the Saudi UAE-led war in Yemen. Uh, we were very thrilled to hear that. That's better than you know, what we've been dealing with with the Trump administration. But unfortunately, the devil's in the details. Uh, we didn't know what the difference was, according to Biden, what offensive and defensive actually meant. There wasn't really a specification about that. And so Congress followed up and they asked a bunch of questions. Uh, Representative Khanna, Representative Fazio teamed up and they sent a letter to the administration asking about 13 or 14 really important questions about the blockade, ongoing support, the definitions between offensive and defensive weapons and support, maintenance for the, for the warplanes, all of these questions. And we didn't really hear back. We got no clarification. And so that has sort of, you know, that tells you a lot about where we are and, and where we need to go. 
so what has happened since is that um, Congress has followed up with that particular letter with several other statements. Uh, we had Representative Dingell, uh, Pocan, and Kana lead a 76-member letter calling on Biden to end the blockade. Uh, you heard what Aisha and Shireen said. We need to end this blockade, decouple it from ongoing negotiations. Starvation should never be used as a bargaining chip. And that's what we got a bunch of Democrats in the House to say. That was followed up by another letter by Chairman Meeks and Chairman Deutsch on the House Foreign Affairs Committee. And, and they said the same thing, end the blockade, lift it as a humanitarian act, um, and, and do so immediately, irrespective of these on nego ongoing negotiations. And then we had Senator Warren in the Senate follow up with a 16, uh, 16 senator letter effort, kind of going one step further saying, we want you to not only call for an end to the blockade, we want you to use U.S. leverage to get this done. That means, uh, you know, potentially weapon sales, putting those on the table, saying we're not going to sell you weapons anymore, Saudi Arabia, UAE, unless you lift the blockade. Uh, or, you know, they didn't specify exactly what that was, but they made it clear to the Biden administration that they wanted them to use leverage. Uh, unfortunately, uh, the you know while the administration has changed their tone on on the blockade and on ongoing support, they definitely are now publicly saying that they want Saudi to end the restrictions on ports of entry. They're not being clear what they're willing to use as leverage, and that's where we need Congress to step in and pass uh, a Yemen war powers resolution to end all U.S. military support for the war in Yemen, to codify you know, the existing executive order that Biden put into place. Granted, we don't really know what that meant, but if, if that meant, meant ending U.S. support for the war, let's get it into law. Let's get it you know, passed through both chambers and then to get the Biden administration to actually sign that. Um, so I think that's really key. There are other vehicles that you know we could talk about, standalone legislation, attaching something to a must-pass bill. But right now we're we're really focused on trying to force a Yemen war powers vote, and that that's a key legislative vehicle for a few reasons. But the main one is that we can force a vote without leadership support, and that's just absolutely um, absolutely critical because. If you introduce it, any member of the House or Senate can introduce this vehicle, and we can secure a vote on this particular bill within 15 legislative days. So that's what we're trying to do now is to force the question. That's the biggest thing that I think folks right now in the advocacy community are pushing for uh, to kind of move this conversation along because, you know, in March, they said, four, you know, the World Food Program said 400,000 children were living with severe acute malnutrition in Yemen at, at that point, and that they would die without, uh, you know, urgent assistance within weeks or months. And here we are in June. How many of those children have already needless, needlessly died because of this ongoing blockade on all ports of entry by Saudi Arabia with U.S. support? Yeah, um, I want to actually maybe drill down on a few things that you guys talked about. Um, one thing, Hassan, that you mentioned um, is that in the executive order, it was unclear the distinction between offensive and defensive. And I think that's a really good thing to discuss a little further, um, because obviously, it you know, 
to most people, there should be a clear line between what's offensive and what's defensive. But for the U.S. and for other sort of aggressor countries in the past, we've treated, for example, the Iraq war. We painted that as being defensive because we thought, you know, we claimed they had weapons of mass destruction. So in this case, you know, it lends itself to ambiguity calling the war defensive. So can you tell us why the Saudis are claiming that it would be defensive for them to be doing these bombing runs on this obviously, you know, crippled war-torn Yemen, and what's the pushback there? Uh, yeah, so, you know, there are rocket attacks, drone attacks that are going into Saudi territory. I'll just admit that there really haven't been, you know, I think maybe one casualty in six years or so that has actually resulted from this, but they're claiming that those rocket attacks are part you know what what they're going after and that they need to um you know kind of stop those attacks going into uh, saudi territory but the reality is way different one the blockade is an offensive operation that's hurting civilians not houthi commanders and officials end of story so that right there you know that's why we're trying to drill down with the administration and, and let them know that we consider the blockade and offensive operation, and that's being enforced by U.S. sold uh, warplanes and naval vessels that receive ongoing U.S. support in, in the form of maintenance. And let's just drill down into that particular question, what, what this maintenance does. Every, you know, nearly every time a Saudi warplane lands, these are F-15s that we've s sold them. Uh, you need to replace a lot of spare parts like tires, you know, just all, all sorts of spare parts that need to be replaced on a daily or, you know, almost daily basis. So that just goes to show you how dependent they are on that military support. Uh, there, there's right now an offensive that's been going on for over a year in the government of Marib. They're claiming that might be defensive, but really, you know, that's not a threat to Saudi sovereign territory. They're just attacking, uh, uh, attacking Houthis in this, um, you know, ongoing confrontation. For them to define some of these things as defensive is pretty absurd to me. And that's, that's kind of why we need to keep the pressure on. I'll let Aisha and Shireen say more. Yeah, I, I want to add here that we're not talking about defending U.S. Um, you know, from, from any Houthi attacks. There is no threat to the U.S. Like the case with WMDs was that this was going to be a threat to the United States at some point somehow. Um, we're talking about defending Saudi Arabian territory. And somehow this is seen as a completely acceptable form of engagement that we are so invested in Saudi Arabian security that we have green berets on the ground, or we did at some point without um, the Pentagon acknowledging it to Congress. Um, you know, we are investing so much money and have uh, essentially killed a quarter of a million people in Yemen and are starving millions more because of a few rocket attacks that have killed no one, by the way, that one casualty was the Saudis actually themselves attacking the person in an effort mm -hmm. to try to, um, you know, uh, counteract the, the missiles that were being, the rockets that were being sent. And so no Saudi civilians have been killed by Yemenis. A quarter of a million Yemenis have been killed by Saudis in the U.S. No, Sa no Emirati civilians have been killed. Obviously, there's no threat to any U.S. civilians. Um, and also the Obama administration framed this as a defensive operation from the start, from announcement that was made by the Obama White House in March of 2015. They said that we are, we are defending Saudi territories and Saudi sovereignty. So if we're back to that framing now, then what's changed? If the entire past six years, 
have been on the pretext of a defensive operation, then how can we all of a sudden say, no, actually now it's defensive uh, and not offensive? So I think these are just, um, you know, the Biden administration is playing with words here, is trying to sell an idea, um, and it seems to be business as usual um, since that announcement was made in February. I also want to echo that. I mean, since day one, which is March 26, 2015, every single day, the Saudi have been bombing Yemen. Think about that. Every single day, not a single day, whether under Obama, whether under Trump, whether under Biden. Yemeni are being bombed every single day since 2000, March 2015. Um, and in terms of, you know, what the Saudis are afraid of, I just, does, for me, it doesn't make any sense. You are the aggressor. You're the one who started, you know, bombing Yemen. You're the one who continued to bomb Yemen. You're the one who have a blockade on Yemen. And what it's, it's so hard to think of a poor country like Yemen uh, being a threat to Saudi Arabia. The Yemeni did not start responding to some of these attacks until two or three years after the war started. And even when they send, you know, um, whatever they, they are sending out, um, it's always targeting military bases. Um, and so it's, it's again, a, a country that is poor, that doesn't have any of the weapons that the Saudis have. And to think that it, cre it is a threat to a country like Saudi Arabia is just absurd. I mean, we should flip it on its head, right? It's like Saudi Arabia sort of wants to assert dominance as a regional power, maybe more likely. Uh, and I would love to hear, uh, you know, from any of you, let's complicate this a little bit. We hear the UAE and, uh, and Saudi Arabia maybe, you know, backing different factions of the anti-Houthi uh, who are now even in conflict. Uh, how does this become stickier and messier when it becomes about this regional power grab? Let me start on that. Uh, yes, Saudi Arabia wants to have full control of Yemen. This is something they've been very open about it uh, for the many years. Anytime a Yemeni uh, president who wants to distance themselves or have some independence in Yemen, the Saudis have made sure that that doesn't happen. So they have been in total control of foreign policy in Yemen for many years. What they consider a threat, and I agree with you, Aaron, is that when the Houthi took Sana'a, that's what they considered a threat because there, then there was a sense that they're not going to listen to them and do as they wish uh, because they've controlled, you know, throughout. And anybody who came to power had to yield to the Saudis, otherwise they made their lives very difficult uh, inside Yemen. The Saudis have interest in Yemen for many reasons, but one of them is right now, which they have been actively pursuing, is the area in Al-Mahara. Uh, Al-Mahara is a governorate in Yemen, and they want to have their pipelines for, um, you know, exporting oil through Al-Mahara so they don't have to go through the Hormuz uh, state. And this Al-Mahara does not have any Houthis, never had any Houthis. The Houthis were never there, yet the Saudis are building a military base there. They uh, have closed the airport there and controlled the airport. 
So that's their interest right now, um, the immediate that had come out. In terms of the Emiratis, the Emiratis have always had interest uh, in controlling Yemeni ports. In, in the previous administration in Yemen under Ali Abdullah Saleh, they had an agreement to develop Aden port. Aden port is actually a very strong competitor to Dubai's port because it's a natural port and it's easier for ships to get in and out of it than to go in and out of Dubai. So they had an agreement that was spanning 100 years for them to develop Aden uh, port. But in, in actuality, once they had that agreement, they basically closed Aden port. So Aden port became very weak. And that's why we see when with the closure of Hadeda port, Aden port is not able, although it's a, it's a, you know, it's a natural port that it can uh, you know, be very competitive in the region is not even able to meet the needs of the Yemeni people. So when, during the Arab uh, upspring, uh, the Yemeni people insisted that that agreement with the Emirati be broken. And so they, they were able to break the agreement, but and unfortunately the, the war that started in 2005 15 gave them now more power in Aden. So not do they just control now the Aden port, they also control the Aden airport, they also control Sokatra Island, and they are, you know, uh, flying tourists to Sokatra without the knowledge of the Yemeni government in exile. And they have even the visa that they use with them, it's a piece of paper that they print uh, allowing visitors that uh, to go to Yemen, to Sokatra, while we Yemeni cannot go to Sokatra. They also control the port and in, in, uh, airport in Mukalla and, and Shabua. So they have really seeded themselves and took control of major ports in Yemen. And, and I would add that the other aspect of control is, um, you know, they are building a base on an island in Baban Mandab Straits. Um, they are funding the uh, Southern, Southern Transitional Council, which is actually it makes no sense if they're saying that they're part of this coalition that is trying to reinstate the legitimate, you know, president of Yemen. Uh, well, how would, why would you then fund um, and support and back uh, a group that wants to secede from the union, which is the STC? It's a Southern secessionist movement. And um, the UAE has also been operating um, secret prisons in the South. Um, there have been documented evidence of torture in those secret sites. They have led an assassination campaign in the South. Um, and you know, they, they hired mercenaries to, to do all of this work, of course. And they've gotten to say, you know, they've gotten away with saying that we pulled their troops out of Yemen, we're no longer involved in Yemen, whereas that only really meant that they no longer have physical boots on the ground in Yemen, but they're just expanded the mercenary use. Um, and so there's not a lot of critical pushback, but their vision certainly seems to be different than, than Saudi Arabia, as uh, Aisha just outlined. Yeah, I think it's um, really unsurprising that obviously money, power, and resources are really the driving factor be behind this violence. Um, but of course, in our U.S. press, usually the aims of the U.S. and its allies are always cast in a light of, you know, democracy, freedom, or self-defense. Um, so this might be a question for you, Shireen, as you've, you know, written a lot in some sort of alternative outlets, um, but how is the U.S. press dealing with this crisis? How are they either not acknowledging it, undercovering it, 
and even obscuring what's happening in the I mean, region. It's been entirely shameful. And, and I really believe that if the war started under Trump, we wouldn't be talking right now. We you know, wouldn't have lasted so long. But the war started under Obama. And in many uh, liberal outlets, there was this hesitancy, you know, outright just denial that, you know, Obama could be doing something that is um, unconstitutional. Right, that is uh, genocidal in Yemen. And so there was virtually no pushback in Congress, very little pushback during the Obama administration, and um, not enough press about what was going on. When you did hear about Yemen, uh, you almost never heard that the US was actively involved every step of the way from the very beginning. And so it just seemed like it was the civil war um, that you know the Saudis are just trying to involve themselves in the civil war and, and nothing else. And if there was any critical um, pushback against the U.S., it was very constrained to weapon sales and not every other way that the U.S. was involved. Under the Trump administration, there began to be more movement in Congress, and as a response, the press was also picking that up, uh, but still never really enough. Like, we should have impeached our presidents on this, on committing a genocidal war on a country of 30 million people, you know, and yet that was never discussed. Um, it was always just an afterthought. So I think it's, um, you know, I remember living through the Iraq war days and the exactly. press's complicity and um, kind of drumming up support for this argument that was deeply flawed. And, and there was a lot of reflection after that about where did we go wrong? And yet here we are again um, in 2015 to 2021, repeating the exact same mistake, not really pushing our elected officials, not, you know, it never came up in the campaign trail, for example, when Hillary and um, Trump were going against each other, and it very minimally came up in the campaign trail later. Um, but I just think it's such a failure of the, of the of mainstream sources. This is what you're tasked with. You know, we have a free press in this country for a reason, uh, and yet there was very little critical pushback. There was some. Um, Recently, there was an amazing investigation by CNN, which confirmed that there's a blockade. Um, Nama Bagher, you know, she um, essentially snuck into the country because she couldn't get visas from the Saudi-led coalition um, and reported on the fuel blockade that is essentially shutting down hospitals. It's killing people. Think about all the ways that fuel is needed for, for society, for a country. Uh, and when confronted with this blockade, the Biden administration just said, nope, there is no blockade. And so, that, again, like we needed the press to do this years ago, right? And that investigation got the ball rolling on all of the work that Hassan's been able to do. He's been able to cite the CNN report. He's been able to show Congress that this is happening. Uh, our government is involved in this way. But I just can't help but think that, you know, where was this all these years ago? The blockade has been happening since 2015. Mm -hmm. Right. I think um, we're coming up on time, but the last thing that I'd like to ask all three of you is just how, as Americans, as American activists, um, how can we support the work you're doing? So, Aisha, I'd love to hear a little bit about what y'all do at the Yemen Relief and Reconstruction Organization. And, Hassan, if you can let us know, you know, how we can uh, talk to our representatives about the Yemen War Powers Resolution and check if they're supporting it. Um, what should Americans be advocating for? What should we be elevating um, and talking about? And beyond, you know, global solidarity that we're trying to forge here on the committee program. Yes. So Yemen Relief and Reconstruction Foundation uh, was established in 2017 uh, with 
three objectives. The first objective was to increase awareness uh, in the U.S. among politicians as well as the population about what's going on in Yemen. So we've been doing a lot of presentations uh, to increase awareness. And the reason we wanted to do that is so people can call their representatives and call their senators and say and, and call the administration and say this is unacceptable. We should not be part of this war. So I would continue to ask people to do that. Please call your representatives and senators and the White House and tell them that we should not be part of a genocidal war. Um, the second part of our work is provide relief in Yemen. And so we've been very fortunate and the generosity of the American public, we've been able to provide a lot of activities and, and relief. We uh, distribute food baskets to those who are in need and we know without these uh, food items, they are at high risk of famine. We also support educational program. We uh, support medical uh, programs. We support water programs. And so these are an income generation activities because we want people to be able to do um, and earn their own uh, income. So these are some of the, the programs and please visit our website, yemenfoundation.org. The other thing that we are interested in is supporting a just peace in Yemen. And that's why working with Hassan, with Shireen and many other activists is also very important for us, is to make sure that everybody is included uh, in peace negotiations. And I actually do not think the U.S. as an impartial negotiator or mediator. We know it's that it's with the Saudis. It have decided where it is going to be supporting and who is going to be supporting. So to think that the U.S. government, you know, with Linda King as a mediator for peace in Yemen is for me uh, is suspect because they are not impartial. Uh, they've decided their side. So what I would like for people to pressure them uh, again through a lot of the advocacy work is to make sure that they are, when they mediate, they work with people like the Amanis who are real uh, impartial in, in the region and not um, continue to pretend that they are interested in peace when uh, they're actually <laughs> you know, supporting one side of the war. So these are some of the activities that we, uh, that we work on. I would just add that you should just do what Aisha tells you to do. And that's, that, that will get you pretty far, and Shireen as well. Uh, every, everything that she just said I think is really important. People should, you know, if they can, kick in a few bucks to Yemen Relief and Reconstruction Foundation. Go to YemenFoundation.org and make sure that you're supporting her amazing work, both on the advocacy side but also the humanitarian side. Um, I think folks should ask their members of Congress, uh, their rep and their two senators, to introduce a Yemen War Powers resolution. And it's actually a very simple process. You just take a piece of paper and you submit it to ledge, basically ledge council, you know, and submit it to your the parliamentarian. It's like one sheet of paper could help us end this war. Um, and we just need to find one representative mm -hmm. to call the question up and force a vote. And who's going to have the guts to make that happen? That's really all that it, we're talking about. I think, you know, we, we got Ro Khanna on this before. He needs to be pushed. We got Senator Sanders on this before. He needs to be pushed. Uh, you know, uh, Representative Dingell, uh, Pocan, uh, Representative DeFazio, Senator Warren. They've all done a lot of work on Yemen under Trump. 
they need to do it under Biden as well. And not just statements and letters, but they need to push legislation. So uh, I, I would say that's all critical. We've also set up a site, endtheblockade.com. That will generate an email to your member of Congress, and that's a really that's kind of the lowest rung there. It's just endtheblockade.com that can uh, you know generate a letter to your member to say you want them to, to be vocal about the and, blockade. And I just have to add that you know for the American public or for the European public, there is no complexity here. The complexity I think it sometimes gets in the way of people um, doing something about it. But it's a really simple story. You have a, some of the world's richest countries bombing a country that doesn't even have an air force, okay? And starving its civilians. Nowhere else in the world is a country entirely under blockade where they can't even get food or water. And so you have, you know, uh, diseases like cholera and, you know, like we're talking uh, siege warfare here. We're not even talking anything we've seen in modern times. And so that's the simple story that we need to understand our role within that. Whatever happens in Yemen is up to the Yemenis. It's not up to us to solve the Yemenis problems. It's up to Yemenis and Yemen to solve their own problems. It's up to us as citizens in free societies where we have representative governments to actually get our governments to stop doing these actions and you know uh, enabling the genocide of Yemeni people. So I think that's the most important story here. You know, it takes a second to just call your senator, your representative, or you know all these European countries continuing to sell weapon sales to Saudi Arabia. Like we need to put an end to that as well, um, because we're dealing with one of the most, two of the most incompetent armies ever, the Saudis and the UAE. They don't manufacturing the weapons, so they rely on imports. They don't train their own soldiers, so they rely on these army contracts from the US and the UK mostly. Um, they don't even know how to choose their own targets. And so without the US, there is no genocidal war in Yemen. Um, and I think that's what we need to focus on when we're advocating for an end to this war. Thank you yeah, so I was going to say thank you all so much for oh, telling ahead, this simple story so strongly, because I think as we know, it's not certainly new, but using complexity as a blunt instrument with which to beat down things that seem obvious has been a playbook of power, you know, for, for centuries. Uh, but yes, as Julia said, thank you all for coming on. Aisha, Shireen, Hassan, we really appreciate it. And I hope we'll have a chance to catch up with you with better news. Maybe? Yes. Th thank you. La Sacrificarse hasta la muerte en los campos de batalla de todos los continentes del mundo. Comité, comitato, comitiet, comiteto, corul, comité, we young way, submitting, we committee.